sent home by my wife and myself because she wasn't feeling so good. So why don't we lift our voice and pray for them specifically. The Lord will touch their bodies and heal them today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for Leah, Sister Bryson. In Jesus' name, Lord, would you heal their bodies? Do a work in them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Raise them up by the power of your spirit, Lord. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your saving grace, God. In Jesus' name, eradicate these viruses and, and problems in the name of Jesus. Let your will be done, God. And we give you the thanks and the praise for it. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we thank you, God, for it. We thank you this morning. God bless you this morning. Our Sunday school class can be dismissed. They're going to go have a great time. One room classroom today. Amen. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. They are very excited. Matthew 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, and starting at verse number 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Thank you. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. We're going into a new series, and God is going to help us understand a very important part of his word. And we're going to thank him for that. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness. We pray, Father, in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us. We pray that you'd speak through me and let your words touch us and challenge us and change us, transform us, God, by the power of your spirit and by the power of your word today. We give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. High five someone next to you and tell them good morning. You look nice. Sometimes all someone needs is a smile to brighten their day. So. Maybe seated this morning. Jesus asked his disciples two very important questions. One was, who do people say that I am? And I think that's uh, good for us to know. Good for us to know what people say about God. It gives us a kind of a touch point on our culture, on our world. We need to understand that because it, it, uh, it gives us a little perspective of where we fit in the whole of society. But the more important question was the second one that Jesus really wanted to drill home was, 
Who do you say that I am? It's one thing to hear what others have to say about God, whether it's good or bad, but it's another thing to know what you say about God. Growing up in a home where my father was a pastor and involved in the church, it was, uh, you know, it was one thing to know what my dad had to say about who Jesus was. And that was an important part of my life, my upbringing. But eventually, I had to come to my own place where I said, who do I say that Jesus is? And uh, for those of you that grew up in a Christian home and in the church, and you've had that experience of, well, I know what my parents say about Jesus, but what do I say about Jesus is the real question. And whether or not you grew up in the church or you came into the church, you came into the, the kingdom of God by someone testifying to you, at first you had to deal with what did people say about Jesus to you. They testified to you about who Jesus was. But at some point in the journey, you had to declare, you had to say, you had to determine what you believed about this man called Jesus. See, the people of Jesus' day thought that Jesus was a prophet from the Old Testament. And they had their opinions on who they thought it was, Jeremiah. Maybe it was John the Baptist or Elijah. And it was a big question mark of who was this man called Jesus? And then Jesus turns the question back to his disciples. That first slide, that is, if you want to throw that up there, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Are you, are you John the Baptist? That was kind of an interesting one because John the Baptist by this point was beheaded. He was dead. Jeremiah was long dead and Elijah was dead for even longer. So uh, it was interesting that people thought that maybe God had resurrected one of these ancient prophets from the dead or had even resurrected a more recent prophet, namely John the Baptist from the dead. And uh, then Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Now, when you ask this question today, uh, people might give you a variety of different answers. You know, who, do, who do people say that Jesus is? Was he a good teacher? Was he a, a prophet from an old book long ago? Some, some people would, would uh, you know, there's very few people that say Jesus didn't exist at all. That, that's not a historically strong point. It's a, a historically proven fact that Jesus indeed was here on the earth. He was a real historical figure. And uh, it's debatable whether or not, you know, by the world standards, whether or not he actually performed the miracles the Bible claims that he did perform. And uh, some might even say Jesus was a reformer of his day. They might even say that he, he challenged the systems. He challenged the religious system. He challenged the political system. He, and that's what he, he died for. He was martyred for this political activism, you know, for the Romans to go home, a kind of a zealot, you know. Romans, get away. Jews, clean up your act, whatever the case was. And maybe he was just a really smart guy. 
maybe just a really nice guy with a lot of smart things to say. But I really like what uh, the author C.S. Lewis writes in his book on mere Christianity. He has a very, very powerful, uh, a very powerful perspective here. I'm going to read this portion for you. You might follow along a little bit on the screen. It says, I'm trying to here prevent anyone from saying really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. C.S. Lewis makes an argument that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who said he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. And you must make your choice. You've got to make your choice. Which one do you think? You, you really, Jesus does not give you the luxury of, of picking that he was a great moral teacher or he was God himself. You don't have that luxury. Jesus drives it home for you that either you think he's a complete lunatic and his claims, everything he has to say is not good, or that he is indeed who he says he is. C.S. Lewis makes the statement, don't give any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He did not leave that option open to us, and he does not intend to. So, who do you think Jesus is? Jesus asked the real question, who do you say that I am? It's nice to know what others think, and it's even easy to talk about it, but when you have to give an answer for yourself, it makes it very personal. It means something. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter responds to the awkward silence of the moment, and he answers Jesus' question with, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Later on the day of Pentecost, Peter would make the bold declaration publicly in Acts 2.36 when he says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord and Messiah. This was no small statement. Peter was declaring that Jesus is the Savior of that which was promised in the Old Testament. Also, that he was not just the Savior of the Old Testament. He was not the, the Messiah promised from old, but he is indeed the Lord of the whole earth. The word Lord means Master, owner, governor, ruler. And so Peter was declaring that Jesus not only had the, the religious right of the Jews to be Messiah, but he had the legal right to claim lordship over the whole earth. Like the disciples, we've got to come to grips with what we believe about Jesus. We've got to come to grips with what do we think about him is he just my savior? Is he just my, my friend? We, we've, in the church, we coined songs that say things like, I am a friend of God. And that's great. I mean, I, I, I like the fact that God is my friend, that God is, 
is my Savior. I love the fact that God is my shepherd. I love these images and analogies that are all very scripture and scriptural and biblical. But at some point, I've got to come to the realization that Jesus is more than just a Savior. He's more than just a friend. He's more than a friend that even the Bible says sticks closer than a brother. He's more than any of these things. He is my Lord. He is my Lord. I've got to come to that term that, that he's not just a man, but he is God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. The God who cannot be seen or contained. The God who fills all of time and all of space. You could not contain God because he is neither present in just today or yesterday, but he's present in yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is not limited by space because the heavens of heavens, the Bible says, cannot contain him. The Bible declares that, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God even asked the question, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. On how are you going to build a house big enough for me? I love it when people call the church building the house of God. Because uh, it just tickles me that they think this is actually a building big enough to house the God of all creation and the God of the universe. Uh, he, I'm sorry, cannot be contained in any of these places. Uh, but he can be seen and known through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, you've got to look at Jesus. If you want to know what God sounds like, you've got to listen to Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, you've got to hear what Jesus has to say. And if you're going to find out what God uh, is like, you've got to look into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the express image of his person. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. <laughs> Jesus is the only source of freedom. Galatians 5 and 1. So stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again to the yoke of bondage. He is the only source of salvation. Acts 1 uh, 4 and verse 12 says neither is there any uh, uh, salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He is the head. And I must adapt to his rule in my life. Colossians 1 verse 17 says he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is first in everything the Bible says. This means all of us, myself included, have to adapt our ways to his ways. Now, the question becomes personal because we, you can hear what I have to say about Jesus. You can hear what I have to preach about Jesus. But at some point, you've got to come to terms with what do you say about Jesus? The beautiful thing about humanity is God has all given us each a choice 
of how are we going to respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And every one of us has the choice. We have the freedom to choose. Are we going to respond by saying, yes, I agree, Jesus is Lord. Are we going to willingly say that? Or is that something we're going to have to say one of these days when the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is indeed Lord? We use the possessive pronouns quite a lot. My life. My car. My voice. My job, my phone, my food, my children, Every, everything we say, we, we attach that little possessive thing to the front of it, giving us the illusion that it indeed belongs solely to us. But when we come into the kingdom of God, we need to be awakened to the reality that we really do not own a thing. But everything we have has been given to us to use for our benefit and the benefit of others. We, we sing a song in the church, and I, I think we'll probably end up singing it at some point today. My life is not my own. To you, I belong. Because somewhere along the line in your Christian walk, you're going to have to realize that the life you have was given to you. You did not earn it. You do not possess it. You cannot control it. We try very hard to put a lot of control mechanisms on life until we get to the age where we finally give up trying and we just start living. When you stop trying to control your life, that's the day that you start to live your life. The breath you breathe does not belong to you. And that is painfully made aware when, when that breath is taken from someone we love. Unexpectedly, they lose that life that they possessed and held on to because their time came up. And so that, that transcends into everything we have. The car, yes, it has my name on it. When the bank looks for the payment on the car, it comes after me. When the bank wants the payment on the house, it comes after me because after all, my name is on the deed, my name is on the list, my name is on the insurance. And so according to them, the car belongs to me. If one of my children recklessly gets in my car and takes off down the street and has a car accident, the police are gonna come looking for me because my name is attached to that vehicle. But in all reality, I look at that vehicle and I say, God, you're the one that gave it to me. You gave it to me to use for my family, for my, my, my daily needs, and I'm thankful for it. But I also want to look at it through the lens of God. How do you want me to use this vehicle? Every one of our things that we possess as a Christian, we come into the, the possession and the, the ownership of it. But we've got to have an idea that what we have doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God. And we are stewards of the things that he has given to us. I'm not even, I don't even own the salvation that I enjoy. God has given that to me and I am a steward of his grace. 
Now because he's given me grace, I'm responsible to give grace to others. Do you see how it works? That, that flies in the face of our humanity. We like to own things. We like to have things. This is, after all, my phone. If my kids pick it up and start to play on it, I say, wait a minute, that's daddy's phone. You can't play with it without asking. And there's, there's, some, there's some legitimate principles there of, of, of ownership and respecting others' property, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I've got to come back to that, that realization that God is the real owner of the things that I have. And I need to look at it that way so that I live in a way that is surrendered to his rulership. Pastor, does that mean that, that you're limited in what you can and can't do? You might look at it that way. You might, you might say and look at it from the perspective of, of being limited, but I, I, I tend to like looking at it from the perspective of, of, of God is the one who is in charge of my life. And if he says something is good for me, then I know I can have it, I know I can use it, I know without any kind of fear of that thing will be a detriment to my life. But if God pulls the reins on my life and says, wait a minute, there's, there's an area that is a bit of a danger zone. I can look at it as oppression. I can look on that as God's trying to control me. Or I can say, God is truly, I submit myself to the fact that God knows better than me. He is, after all, the Lord of my life, and he does not seek to abuse or mistreat or, 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 or uh, abuse that power that he has, but he seeks to do it for my benefit and for the benefit of his kingdom. Nothing more exemplifies this in our life than a five-letter word called money. Money has the power to reveal to us what we truly value. Now, I'm not trying to do uh, some kind of a, a telling you how to run your life and how to spend your finances and any of that. I just want to examine what does the Bible have to say about our time, our talent, and our treasure. These are things that God has given to us, but we do not own. God has given you time, but you do not own it. You cannot control it. You cannot slow it down as much as parents of young children would like it to. Well, sometimes. Sometimes you want it to kind of speed up past a certain phase, but ultimately you really do want time to slow down so you can enjoy more of your children's life before you know that they're going to be adults and don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> teenagers and just off in their own world, living their own life. You, you want those years, precious years of closeness. At least that's where I am right now, but I can't slow down time. I can't stop it. It's not mine. But it is something that's given to me. Every single day, I'm given 24 hours in that day. I'm given, I don't even know if I'm given 24 hours in that day. The truth is, I'm only given the time that's, that I'm in right now, but it's a gift. I don't own it. But how am I going to use that time? How am I going to spend those moments, those minutes? How am I going to invest that into the future? The talent. God's given me talents, abilities, giftings. But I didn't earn any of those things. They don't inherently belong to me for me to use 
for myself. God gave me a talent and an ability to use for the benefit and the blessing of others. And the treasure I have. These three things God has given to me, but I do not own them. A Christian will come to the realization that we've eventually got to say, what do we say about Jesus? We've got to answer that question. Is he my Savior? Do I only want him for the things that he can do for me? Do I only want him because he'll save me and wash away my sins? Do I only want him because he gives me good things and blessings? Or do I want him to be the Lord of my life? See, before we even talk about money, time, talent, treasure, we've got to first address what it is that we love. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, God says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. All. You've got to love the Lord with all your soul, all your heart, all your strength. You've got to love him with a completeness. Love is a, a very powerful word. And when we see the way that God describes it here, he says, I want you to love me with all of your heart. The word heart means the seat of the positive and the negative emotions. The center of everything you think, feel, and understand. It's also the place from which you make choices and decisions, right? You know that you read in the Bible where, where David uh, decided in his heart that he was going to build the temple of God. He decided that in his heart. And the Bible uses that phraseology, the heart, to, to represent the center of man. It's from the heart that he makes these decisions. It's the seed of his positive and negative emotions. And God says, I want you to love me with all your heart. I want you to love me with all the positive emotions that you have. I want you to even love me with all the negative emotions. Well, how do I, how do I love God with negative emotions? I bring them to him. I bring my negative things to God. I don't just bring my, my thanksgiving to God, but I bring my sorrows and my pains to him in prayer. I take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend I have in Jesus. He's not just a fair weather friend. He's not just a friend that sticks close by when things are good. But Jesus is there in the hard times, in the difficult times. He wants me to bring him my heart, my everything, my negative and my positive. He wants me to love him with all my soul. The word soul in the Hebrew is the word nephesh, which means not this like floaty, blue hue, purpley, spiritual, hazy thing around somebody. It's not what some might call your aura. I better not get down that rabbit trail. Okay. The word soul in the Bible means your throat. Your throat. It's kind of a weird thing, but 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 think about it through the eyes of a Hebrew. With all of your throat, God wants you to love him with all of your throat. Does that mean he wants you to love him with what you say? Well, yes, but it's more than just what you say. 
Because the, the quickest way to kill somebody, well, I'm sure there's probably a lot of fast ways to kill somebody, but a surefire way to kill someone is to, and forgive the gruesome reference, to cut their throat. Because from the throat passes everything you need to live. Food, water, air, all comes through the throat. Breath, water, food come through your throat. It was a, a way of representing the whole man. In Psalm 42, verse 1, it says uh, that, that uh, as a deer pants for the waters, so my soul, my throat, pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The psalmist was writing that like a deer in the dry desert must get water to pass through his nephesh to live. So I must have God to live. Like a thirsty animal requires water. You ever watch those National Geographic uh, documentaries on the African savannah? When the, when, the, when the sun is hot and the watering holes dry up and all that's left is these watering holes where all of the animals are coming together. The lion, the zebra, the hyena, and that, those, those, those large, huge hippos that are super territorial and those gigantic crocodiles that you get a little too close to and everybody's hungry and everybody's thirsty. And what would not normally occur, all of these animals in the same place at the same time, they find themselves all vying for place at the watering hole. The zebra's taking the risk that the lion, the hyena, the crocodile, and the hippo aren't going to gang up on him and make him a quick lunch. And if you watch some of those, the crocodiles use these opportunities who live in the water to take advantage of a thirsty buffalo that comes a little too close to the water's edge. Why? Why are they doing this? Because they're thirsty. They're risking life and limb just to get a drink of water. And the psalmist says, just the way this thirsty animal seeks out water, even in a dangerous circumstance, so my soul, my life, pants for you, the living God. I've got to have God in my life because my soul longs for God. It's the image of the complete man, the everything, my ever, my whole being that is existing and alive depends on the living God. When I live that kind of life, when I live that life that not just my church life depends on the living God, but my work life depends on God. My home life depends on God. My sleep life depends on God. My, my everything depends on the living God. I've got to have God in my life. Then God doesn't just become, you don't become like that, 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 that uh, adopted child that you get to see on weekends and evenings, but God gets to see you every single day of the week, every single moment of the day you're in his presence. You're seeking for him because your soul is thirsty for God. God says, I want you to love me with all of that being, all of your being, all your emotions, all your decisions, your whole being. And then he says, I want you to love me with your strength, all of your strength. The word strength is mayod. Mayod is a funny word. It means muchness. God wants you to love him with all of your muchness, 
with all of your wealth, with all of your money, with all of your strength, with every opportunity, capacity, and ability you have, God wants you to love him with those things. Jesus told his disciples that this is the greatest commandment, that we love God with everything, everything, everything. Our emotions, our decisions, our life force, our strengths, our talents, our abilities, everything that we hold on to and say, yes, this belongs to me, this is mine. God says, yes, I want you to love me with every single bit of that thing. I want it to be mine. I want you to give it to me. I want you to surrender it to me. And before you can talk about how to give your time, how to give your talent, how to give your treasure, I've got to come to the place where I say nothing that I have is actually mine, but it's on loan to me. And God wants me to love him with every part of my life. God desires complete devotion and love, not partial or fragmented love. It's no wonder the Bible compares to our relationship with God like a marriage relationship between a husband and wife. Men, ladies, nobody in this room wants a half-hearted lover. Nobody in this room wants a half-hearted wife, a half-hearted husband. Nobody in this room that, that has any kind of, uh, of, of healthy respect of themselves wants the love of their significant other to be divided between them and a person of the night. God, you, none of you in this room would be okay with your husband, your wife, your fiance, your boyfriend living with another one on the side. Nobody would be okay with that. Because in a relationship, we're, we're intrinsically looking for one person that we can spend our time with. And we know and realize, hopefully you know and realize, that person's not going to be perfect. They're going to wake up with bad breath in the morning. They're going to they're gonna roll over and you're going to go, who's that? <laughs> you, you don't look so put together. Hair's going this way. Hair's going that way. You know, uh, in, in, in the morning, I don't know if you have them, but I, I wear a mouth guard, so... In the morning, there's this like clickety-clack of taking the, the mouth guard. I don't look so great in the morning. Everything's kind of disheveled and dis discombobulated. But but my wife still loves me and still says, good morning, babe. I love you. Blah, blah, blah. Some days, not every day. Just like, no, it's not all dreams and fluffy clouds at the Bryson house, okay? But but love is, love is until death do you part. Love is when, when the other is sick, the other one picks up the slack. And, and it's not a half-hearted relationship. It's a whole-hearted relationship. God desires nothing less. Whole-hearted love. Whole-hearted surrender to him. God even calls us to forsake the love of this world. He says, do not love this world or in the things that are in this world and the things that it offers you. Don't don't put your don't put your your source your your don't plug yourself into the world and think that the world is going to benefit you. No, 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 no. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father working in you. God even tells you what the world has to offer: a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that you see. 
pride in your achievements and possessions. And God said, these don't come from the Father. They come from the world. And the world, God said, is fading away. The world is a depleting resource. They talk about the ice caps depleting in, in, in the far north and the, 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 the world is warming and the resources are depleting and the forests are depleting and this is depleting and that is depleting. Let me tell you something. Everything the world has to offer you is depleting and going down. It's not going up. It's not getting better. I know it seems like it sometimes, you know, AI, technology is getting better. Technology is getting scarier. At the end of this message, I'm going to get an e uh, email with Zoom recapping the sermon for me. And it did, the, did it last week, and it was a perfect recap of everything I preached. AI is working when we don't even realize it. I, I, now, I'm not here preaching against it. I'm just saying the world isn't getting better. The world is a depleting resource. The world is a diminishing return. It doesn't, if you plug into your job and make that your source of everything, it's a depleting return. If you plug into a love relationship, that person you're plugging into only has so much to offer before they're depleted and must recharge again. But if you plug yourself into God and make him the source, yes, you will have everything you need. Don't think that this is about asceticism and denying everything. No, it's not about denying everything. It's about making him the source and letting him supply your every need. You're just changing sources. God said that the love of money is the root of all evil. When you love money, you'll do things that will cause pain in others' lives. It's the love of money, the Bible says, that is the root of all evil. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, those who love money will never have enough. John D. Rockefeller said that, that no matter how many millions he earned, it was never enough. It was never enough. So many rich and famous people will, will testify to you, it didn't bring them an ounce of happiness. If fame, fortune, and, and, and getting your big break was the recipe for happiness, then how come some of the most depressed people in the world are some of the most successful? Why, why are movie stars and TV stars and, and, and musicians all, not all, but why are so many of them going down the black tube of drug addiction and and broken relationships. I heard it said that, that, that and this is not a, an attack on any individual, but there's a, a pop star up there who makes money on never getting married. She's constantly in a state of switching from one boyfriend to the other and writing a song about it. And she's popular for that reason. And, and, and the, 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 the economists estimate that the day she gets married will be the day her career comes to an end. Because she literally lives off of broken relationships. Taylor Swift, thank you. Yes, I didn't want to drop names, but you said it, not me. She lives off broken relationships. And that's sad. That our world, do you see what I'm saying? 
The world is it's a diminishing return. If that was the height of, if that was the zenith of success and happiness, how come they're not happy? Because Jesus said, those who love money will never have enough. It's meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. What brings someone real happiness? When you surrender yourself to a God that loves you and don't live for yourself, but live for others. If there was one word you could encapsulate the life of Jesus with, it was others. Jesus lived for others. He did not live for himself. He was tempted in the wilderness, and the devil said, turn the stone into bread. And someone would look at that and say, well, see, Satan was tempting Jesus to eat during a fast. Read it carefully. Jesus' fast had come to an end. The Bible says it was after the 40 days of fasting and prayer that Satan tempted him to turn the stone into bread. What, what was the temptation all about? Jesus was finished his fast. There was nothing wrong with having a meal. Jesus had the power to turn a stone into bread, make it very simple to gain a little strength just to get out of the wilderness. And Satan tempted Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, then turn this stone into bread. It wasn't wrong to eat bread. Jesus was done his fast. But Jesus looked at Satan and said, number one, even though it's not wrong to eat bread, it's not the time to eat bread. And I'm not going to use my supernatural power to benefit myself. The power that Jesus used to multiply the loaves and the fish was for the 5,000 that were hungry. He denied himself when he had the power to do it, but he did it for others. Because Jesus' life was not about himself. He said, man does not live by bread alone. I don't live for the sources and the resources of this world, but I live for every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is my source. That is my everything. And I'm going to live with an open hand for others. I'm closing with this statement, if you will stand with me. If we live for others, then we live with an open hand. When you have an open hand, God can put things into your hands because it's open, ready to receive. But never close your hand on the thing that God gives to you. Because when you close your hand on the things that God gives you, money, resources, time, talents, treasure, your children. When you close your hand on that and say, this is mine, God can no longer take it from you to use for his purposes. And yes, you get to keep it, but he can no longer put anything new into your hand. If I live with the open hand, I live with the, the reality that yes, God puts it into my hand, and God can take it out of my hand. But if my hand remains open, God will never let that hand remain empty. God will always put something in my hand so I can use for his kingdom. I want to be about God's business. Can we pray just for a few minutes? If you find a place to pray, you can pray in your seat. You can pray around this front. I don't. It doesn't really matter. And see if you want to put a, a the, the the there's a prayer playlist 
uh, prayer playlist if you want to put that on for a few minutes just to, to create a little background noise. But let's let's find a place to pray and talk to God this morning. And you can pray with one another around this altar. You can pray for others here this morning. You can pray for yourself. Would you talk to God and surrender yourself to him this morning? Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we desire you. We hunger for you. We long for you, Jesus. We desire to be filled with your spirit. We desire to follow after you today. In Jesus' name, touch us, God. Change us, transform us, Lord, into the, the people that you want us to be. God, we love you. We trust in you. We depend on you, Lord, this morning. Have your way in our service. Have your way in our homes. Have your way in our lifestyle, God. Let everything we do be done for your glory. Let everything we do be done for your honor, Jesus. Let everything we say be done to bring you praise, to bring you glory. God, we surrender to you as the Lord of our lives, as the Lord of our hearts. In Jesus' name, have your way. I surrender myself to you, God. I surrender my life to you, Lord. I surrender my heart to you, Jesus. I surrender myself to you, Lord Jesus. I give it all to you this morning, God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, take my life, God. Take my life, Lord. I surrender to you, God. I surrender to you this morning, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. I surrender to you, Lord Jesus. I surrender to my myself to your will, Lord God, to your way, Jesus. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Would you find a place to pray this morning? Find a place to talk to the Lord just for the next few moments. Hallelujah, Jesus. We need you, God. We need you, Jesus. Surrender to you this morning. 